Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today, I'm actually hoping that we can keep things a little bit brief. Um, Aquinas is awesome. I love Aquinas. He is a fascinating scholar. I love studying him. I've spent a lot of time reading his work and evaluating his philosophy and looking at all the fascinating things that he has done to both philosophy and theology. But the fact of the matter is, this is not Aquinas at his most interesting and dynamic and fascinating. Um, this is Aquinas very much following the model of Aristotle and the model of uh, you know the other theologians who have come before him. He doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of new stuff to add to this discussion of friendship and of love. Um, but he has a little bit, and I do want to talk about it, and I do want to spend some time sort of taking it apart and looking at his method and all that fun stuff. Um, but I am hoping, and I know that I've said this many times before, I am hoping that this one's going to prove to be a little shorter, so maybe if we're lucky we can get out of here in an hour instead of the usual hour and 40 minutes. I mean, I've got other stuff to do. I don't know about you all, but... Um, the other weird thing about teaching Aquinas like this is that usually when I teach Aquinas, he's like the only medieval philosopher that I typically cover. But we've already covered Augustine, and we've already covered Ibn Sina, and we've already covered Andreas Capellanus. Um, like we've covered quite a few of the important medieval philosophers at this point. So as much as Aquinas is writing in a very different mode and approaching his subject with a very different sort of direction, it's also something we've kind of seen before. Like, Augustine was doing let's pair ancient philosophy with Christianity before Aquinas was, and we've seen him do that. Um, you know, Andreas Capellanus is very much speaking to this, you know, new paradigm of, of love and, and, you know, this relationship to one another, and Aquinas isn't. He's following the old philosophical tracks. Um, we could say, hey, at least he's doing Aristotle plus religion, but we already saw Ibn Sina do that as well. Um, so as much as Aquinas is sort of the great synthesis, bringing together all of philosophy up until this point, combining all the best parts of Plato with all the best parts of Aristotle, with all the best parts of the Bible, with all the best parts of Augustine, and Ibn Sina, and Averroes, and all of these other great and impressive important scholars, He's also just kind of doing that. Like, he's not bringing a whole lot of new things to the table. And I want to actually dwell on this a little bit, because this is actually something very typical of this particular moment in the history of philosophy. Um, I'm sure that the first thing that struck you about Aquinas was the style here. The fact that rather than sort of writing this entire essay the way that we see from most of the other scholars that we've, that we've read so far, or a dialogue the way that we see it in either Cicero or in Plato, um, we're getting this really weird question and answer format, and it's even more complicated than that. We're starting with, you know, what is the question? So we have like, oh, what is what is love? What are the effects of love? And then we get these articles. Is union an effect of love? Is mutual indwelling an effect of love? And so on and so forth. And then within each article, we get this really weird sort of non-intuitive structure where we start with the objections, the things that Aquinas is ultimately going to disagree with, um, and then move to what Aquinas actually believes when he says, on the contrary, he introduces his authority, and then he says, I answer that, and he actually delivers his philosophy, and then he answers all those objections that he talked about. So the whole thing is very confusing to read. 
But believe it or not, this is actually standard boilerplate scholastic medieval philosophy structure. Like, so boilerplate, so straightforward, so frequently employed, um, that Aquinas called the Summa Theologica, the work that all of these writings are coming from, his textbook. Like, this is the intro textbook for all students of philosophy and theology from now on, in short. It is meant to be comprehensive. Like, he covers everything in this book. Um, or would have, if he finished it. Like, he apparently got, like, 1,500 pages into it and then just was done. And he famously, apparently said that, like, everything that he's had read or had written to this point was just straw to him, and it didn't mean anything anymore, and then he, like, died shortly afterwards, so many have considered this to be some kind of, like, revelation or vision or something like that. Um, at any rate, we're going to take it seriously, because it's still a really impressive work of philosophy, even if it is sort of rehashing old ground. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind here is Aquinas didn't intend this to be some you know, world-rocking work of original philosophy. This was meant to be an introductory textbook. This was meant to be sort of a summary of everything that had gone before. What's more, the style is actually something fairly entrenched at this point in time. We, as I mentioned in the last lecture, did not get the chance to read Abelard and Heloise, the letters between the two of them that we have in our, our um, Philosophy of Erotic Love textbook. Um, but I should definitely mention that Abelard actually had this really groundbreaking work of philosophy in the 12th century where he wrote a normal sort of philosophical treatise, but he did it in the form of asking questions and providing the various answers. Interestingly enough, um, Abelard's approach was to ask a bunch of questions and then provide all of the possible answers without ever weighing in on which one he thought was right. So if he was going to ask the question, you know, do we have free will, he would say, well, John Damascene says this, and, you know, Pseudo-Dionysus says this, and Augustine says this, and, you know, this guy says this, make of it what you will, and then he'd, like, knock off for lunch. Uh, but this actually became a really important stylistic thing in later medieval philosophy, the scholastic period that we're looking at here. So in the 12th and 13th centuries, basically every philosopher, in order to successfully you know, graduate from these nascent colleges or sort of like achieve recognition within the monastic structure, they had to write their own sentences, their own questions and answers, um, just like Abelard did, but this time providing an actual preference for one of the answers over the others. So you end up with all of these philosophers who are very comfortable with the structure of, here is my big overarching question, like, is love concupiscent or is it not concupiscent? Let me look at all of the possible answers, like, here's what Augustine says, here's what, you know, like, Abelard said, here's what Aristotle said, or what Plato said, if we have these texts available to us, and then ultimately saying, and I say that it is this. I agree with Aristotle, I disagree with this person and this person, I agree with this person, but I disagree with this person, and so on and so forth. So as much as this is a very strange way to write philosophy as far as we're concerned, to Aquinas, this was not only something that he was really familiar with, a style that he would have been very comfortable writing in, but also a style that his readers would have been incredibly comfortable writing and reading as well. And honestly, I kind of love it. Like, 
I know that it probably read wrong to you, and I hope that before you are listening to this lecture that you have been briefed either by prior lectures or me talking in class about the fact that when you read Aquinas, you should probably read him not as written, but instead start with, on the contrary, and I answer that. Start with the passages where Aquinas is actually telling his own opinions, and only then look at the objections and the replies to the objections. If only because I've had so many students who, upon trying to quote Aquinas or trying to understand Aquinas, get caught up in the objections and then never notice that Aquinas doesn't actually believe those things, that he's only presenting them so he can argue against them by the end of the, of the passage. Um, but even if I did not, even if like you are reading this sort of blind and trying to appreciate what's going on here, I hope that it does eventually make a certain amount of sense to you. Like as much as I counsel my students to write to read this out of order if they're reading Aquinas for the first time, I've gotten into the habit of just reading it as written. And once you've read Aquinas familiarly enough, like once you've read him frequently enough, it starts to make more sense. Like, he is so straightforward. Everything that is within, you know, his, his purview, both the things that he agrees with and the things that he disagrees with, are all laid out in this incredibly elegant structure. And what's more, if you have, you know, as much as he is writing these incredibly nuanced articles about these, you know, very sort of finicky dis, uh, determinations between different words or, you know, these very specific Aristotelian modeled ideas, you can, if you were on his wavelength, see deeper into his thought process, see more clearly the logical connections that he is making than nearly any other philosopher out there. Like, with the possible exception of Plato, who is super explicit about his, his logical leaps and his, you know, movements through his dialogues, and even then, sometimes he like abandons that for literary purposes or whatever. Aquinas is absolutely showing his work with every single argument that he is making. He takes nothing for granted. Every time that he is building on something that he has said before or something that somebody else has said, he cites it right then and there. Like he is perhaps the single most clear and transparent thinking philosopher of any that we are ever going to read in this class. And as much as his approach, his, his style is opaque to us, his thinking is absolutely on display here. Um, and I usually will, over the course of the semester, have students who say, by the end of the semester, that they did, in fact, fall in love with Aquinas. Um, that his thinking was just so brilliantly clear to them um, that it made just so much sense once you were on his wavelength, once you were connected to what he was saying, that it just really helped, or it was something that they were eager to read more of. Um, medieval philosophy is a very strange beast to us. It is definitely the most out of sync with our own thinking, if only because modern philosophy um, is only so long ago in our past, and it was very much riffing on ancient philosophy, which means that we have that kind of written into our intellectual DNA as is. Medieval philosophy we turned around from, as we'll talk about in the next couple of lectures. This is the pinnacle of medieval philosophy, the single most medieval of medieval philosophers. Aquinas is sort of the height that medieval philosophy will aspire to. 
because immediately after that, everything is going to change, and the attitudes are going to change, and the way we do philosophy is going to change, and what we emphasize about philosophy is going to change radically, and in a way that we're not going to get back until some of the weirder postmoderns start jumping into the mix. And we're not going to be talking about them in this in this semester, unfortunately. Mostly because I don't know them that well, but also because they're just kind of not relevant to what we're talking about. Not so much with the, with the Klein or the hardcore analytics in here, I'm afraid. Better luck next time. Now the other thing I want to talk about with this particular reading, like, again, this is not sort of the best that the Summa Theologica has to offer. Like, I took a class on the Summa Theologica, and, like, literally for an entire semester, we did nothing but read chunks of the Summa Theologica. Like, Aquinas was all we did. We just lived and breathed him for an entire semester. Um, as much as we covered, like, tons of that book, this was not one of the sections that we typically covered. Again, because he is drawing a lot on Aristotle here. Um, and I was... You know, as much as I have had my praise for, for the other selves textbook in the past, this is one where I'm a little grumpy about it. Not necessarily because they did it wrong, but because they included arguably too much. Like, it's just a really awkward passage to teach. Because it's like 36 pages, which is simultaneously like too much for one reading, but too little for two readings. And... I don't know, like, there's some really awkward stuff in there. I had no idea how I was going to teach this when I initially started out. And ultimately, the fact that I pared it down kind of sucks, because the fact of the matter is, you're missing a lot of the setup, a lot of the introductory work that Aquinas is doing to set up his later arguments, which means you're kind of going in blind here. Um, so as much as I do, in fact, want to talk specifically about the passages that I thought the most relevant, namely the reading for today, the uh, passages from... Um, question 28 and section 1-2, and then uh, question 23 and 25, and what is it, 26 in section 2-2. Like, as much as I think that that's the more relevant for our discussion of how love and friendship actually works, missing out on question 26 and 27 where he's describing the different versions of love and exactly how love is caused, as boring as it might be, is actually really under important to understanding what he's doing. So we're going to start there. Not with the stuff that we read, but the stuff that we didn't have to read for today. Because I think by talking about this, we'll actually get a much clearer understanding of what's going on in the later passages. Again, I was torn as to whether to teach like the first two-thirds of this passage or the back two-thirds. Because the first two-thirds make everything clearer, but the back two-thirds are actually more important as far as the conclusions are concerned. And the main thing that I want to talk about about this first, first section, the reason why I kind of cut it out and felt like I could summarize it pretty well, um, is because Aquinas is doing a very typically Thomistic thing in the first couple of sections. He's drawing lines. Um, this is a classic Aquinas logical move. Like, typically when Aquinas sits down to talk about any subject, when he is dealing with some of these big idea questions that have been kicking around the medieval world for, at this point, hundreds of years, that may have very well be echoing all the way down to the classical writers like Plato and Aristotle, usually his first method of solving the problems that he finds here is to draw distinctions, to break up the words into smaller categories or different possible meanings, and to attack those meanings individually. So when he's talking about love, specifically like love as a passion, 
He is very quick to draw lines around it. He is very quick to emphasize that love is the concupiscible power. Um, he is very quick to emphasize that love is of the category of passions, that it is something that you feel and not necessarily something that you do, though we'll get into the details there. Whether it is dilection, whether it should be divided into love and, or friendship and love of concupiscence, um, which ultimately he does. That's the key distinction here. He wants to stress that we should be talking about two kinds of loves in this passage. Love of concupiscence, which we would probably more comfortably call erotic love, following the Greek rather than the Latin. And then the love of friendship, which, you know, that's anachita, that's like philia in the Greek. Um, that's what we've been talking about a lot in this semester, the same thing that Cicero was talking about, the same thing that Aristotle was talking about. Um, but notice that we are talking about both here, and we are sort of bouncing our ideas and our questions um, to talk about both things. And frequently, Aquinas, when asked a question like, okay, so, you know, is union an effective love? Is indwelling an effective love? Is zeal an effective love? The first thing he is almost always going to do is say, okay, let's divide this first between concupiscent, erotic love, and friendly, friendship love. Uh, because usually the answer will either differ between the two or at least need qualification. But the second thing that he is quickly sort of breaking up here um, is this idea of the apprehension versus the appetite, which we saw some of that in Ibn Sina. Um, like Ibn Sina, Aquinas is very much a student of Aristotle and is very much following Aristotle's teachings throughout the text here. It is the thing that makes Aquinas so important in the history of philosophy because he was the guy who paired Aristotelian philosophy with the Christian faith back when nobody else had access to Aristotle. Like we were talking about last time, you know, it took until the Reconquista of Spain and the Crusades for these philosophical works to finally make them back into the lexicon in Western Europe. Up until that point, all anyone knew of Aristotle in Western Europe was, you know, what did Boethius quote of him, or what did, you know, Lactantius quote of Aristotle. Here, finally, the text has been translated out of Arabic out of Greek into Latin, and finally these scholars are able to read him for the first time in centuries. And again, while some scholars are really resistant to the idea of including and incorporating Aristotle into their theology, others are going off the deep end and just saying that whatever Aristotle says goes. Aquinas is surprisingly moderate as far as that's concerned. Aquinas never, in the entire text, subjugates the Bible to Aristotle but he will usually read the two together and look for a way for the two of them to be compatible. So just as Augustine is sort of the philosopher who takes Plato and specifically Neoplatonism, pairs it with Christianity and comes up with a cogent philosophical system to sort of guide our understanding of how these two sorts of traditions work together, so is Aquinas the same guy but for Aristotle. Um, and again, he's treading on, fre on frequently traveled ground at this point. Like He's read Ibn Sina. He's read Averroes. Um, he knows these writers. He's seen the way that the Islamic scholars and the Islamic uh, world has dealt with these issues. And he is basically just cribbing off of them, like making changes where the Quran and the Bible do not intersect, making 
significant changes where Christianity and Islam have very different views on the subject. But generally speaking, most, like 99% of what's in the Summa Theologica, you can find either in Aristotle proper or in one of the other Islamic scholars who are adapting it to their own purposes. The one thing that Aquinas is doing that is unique is taking the specifically Christian elements of you know, biblical teaching of the theological discussion up until this point and pairing it to Aristotelian philosophy, understanding it through an Aristotelian lens. Um, and we will see some of that here. Not a whole lot of the original work, but some of it. And I do want to sort of stress that once he especially gets into the discussion of charity. Um, but first we need to sort of walk our way there, little by little. Um, so first off, I want to kind of poke a little bit at question 27, um, which is the one before we started, just because it covers a lot of the same ground that Aristotle had covered, but with a slightly new approach this time. Um, so you'll remember back in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he was very much stressing, you know, friendship comes out of goodness, out of virtue. Um, it sometimes comes out of similarity and sometimes comes out of opposites. Well, Aquinas is dealing with all of these same questions. Um, and like Aristotle, he concludes in many of the same directions, but again, the framing is specifically Christian here. So in his first article in question 27, whether good is the only cause of love, he does, like Aristotle, agree. Yes, all love springs from goodness, but his citations, his you know details, his proofs for this are typically biblical or theological. So he quotes Augustine from De Trinitate, assuredly the good alone is beloved, therefore good alone is the cause of love. So notice that this is a little bit different than what Aristotle has been talking about. Like Aristotle would have said that friendship doesn't come from the good, so to speak, but from virtue. Uh, friendship is virtue recognizing virtue in another person, and therefore, you know, a seeking to become virtuous together. Like, that's the ideal form of friendship as far as Aristotle is concerned, unless it's one of those sort of subordinate friendships, like friendships of utility or friendships of pleasure. Um, yes, it does have to do with goodness. It, it's about recognizing the good that another person can do for you or to you or whatever, but notice that it Aquinas is very much skewing this in the Christian notion of good. God is hanging out behind the wings here. Um, and while for Aristotle that would probably also have been the case, again, like we talked about with Ibn Sina, he's got this whole idea of the prime mover, the unmoved mover, who puts everything into motion but is unmoved themselves, who designs everything, who intends everything to a purpose. Aquinas would totally agree with that, but like Ibn Sina, he sees God as being the one pulling the strings. And like Ibn Sina, he agrees that God is simple, that he is simultaneously the highest good and the prime mover. He is the most loved thing and the thing that does all of the loving. Um, because he has all of these characteristics, this goodness implies that God is the direct cause of love as well as being the direct reason that we love. Like Ibn Sina, we're going to see Aquinas follow this out to its natural conclusion in Christian understanding and circles, namely that we are admiring one another, we are making friends with one another in order to follow, capital G, goodness, God. Um, this is where our friendship comes from. Um, likewise, he does talk about the issue of likeness, um, and he mentions that, you know, likeness, unlike what Aristotle was saying, is a direct cause of love. 
Um, and in fact, like, where Aristotle was sort of like, well, sometimes we love things that are the opposite. Sometimes we love things that, you know, can do things that we can't. And in fact, he mentions that as one of the objections in the third article here. Like, we love those who bestow money and health on us and also those who retain their friendship for the dead, but that is not always the case. Aquinas is instead stressing against Aristotle that, yes, likeness is almost always one of the important things that makes people into friends, that causes people to love one another. Opposites attract isn't a terribly important idea for Aquinas, specifically because the reason why we have these like things attracting one another is because it is that same goodness in human beings that does the work of attraction. If God is that central figure behind all love, then, as Ibn Sina claimed, um, Aquinas also agrees that we admire the presence of God in other people, even if we don't necessarily understand that is what it is that we are admiring. Even if we don't know that's what we're looking for, even, that, that, even if we don't know that's what we're loving, we are loving it nonetheless. Um, that likeness, that similarity in the fact that we share the image of God according to Christian and Jewish teaching, that's what causes love to work as well as it does. Likewise, you can follow it the other way around. God admires and loves his image in us. Now, there's complications there because now we're getting into charity territory, which, again, is sort of its own thing. Um, but again, that same quality, that like attracting like, is super important for Aquinas. And unlike things being attracted just isn't within Aquinas' purview. It wouldn't make sense to him. Um, because that would mean that like a good person would like a bad person, or a bad person a good person. Someone who doesn't have the image of God, or someone who has it only like weakly or in a distorted way, would somehow seek out the image of God in a correct way. No, either you're both the image of God and you're seeking it out in each other, or you are neither of you possess it and therefore you like admire each other's vice. If that, like I'm not even sure Aquinas would go that far. Um, but let's go ahead and talk. Let's let's dive into the actual reading for today. Let's let's talk about the the effects to start. Um, and I should stress that a lot of these are just sort of merely verbal. Um, like I said, Aquinas is very particular about his language, and it is by being very particular about his language that he makes these sorts of logical connections. Um, but I do want to talk about a couple of these. Like, we can kind of skip the discussion of union. That, that one seems to make sense. Like, obviously, those who want to who love each other want to be together. They want to be unified. Like, that one's pretty darn straightforward. But I do want to talk about this mutual indwelling in the second article here. Um, notice how this is framed and what he's quoting to get his point across here. We've heard this before. So if you look on page 164, where he starts his own argument, on the contrary, it is written, and he quotes specifically 1 John 4, 16, a passage that we read for this class, he that abideth in charity abideth in God and God in him. Notice the emphasis here. This idea of mutual indwelling, he's pointing to the biblical precedent for this. He is specifically reaching into 1 John and saying, look at how 1 John describes the relationship between God and humans. When you practice charity, you dwell in God. And when you practice charity, God dwells in you. You share a piece of each other, in short. 
Like, some of this is obviously super Christian mystical, and I don't dare to presume to explain it in any literal sense. Like, words fail here. It's meant to be a little bit cryptic. Um, and we can talk about that in a little bit as well. Um, but what Aquinas is very much emphasizing is that by engaging in this relationship, by engaging in this love relationship, it's not just a matter of admiration for someone or even like wanting good for someone. No, you exchange parts of yourself. You are personally changed by your love insofar as people now influence you, become a part of you, and you them. Like, obviously, God is the clear example here, but notice that the model is universally applied. So he says, I answer that this effect of mutual indwelling may be understood as referring both to the apprehensive and to the appetitive power, because as to the apprehensive power, the beloved is said to be in the lover inasmuch as the beloved abides in the apprehension of the lover. Now by apprehension, he's talking about knowledge. How much do you understand this other person? So he quotes Philippians 1.7, For that I have you in my heart. While the lover is said to be in the beloved according to apprehension, inasmuch as the lover is not satisfied with the superficial apprehension of the beloved, but strives to gain intimate knowledge of everything pertaining to the beloved, so as to penetrate into his very soul. Thus it is written concerning the Holy Ghost, who is God's love, that he searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And quotes a passage from 1 Corinthians that admittedly we did not read this time around. But notice the significance here. You know another person deeply when you love them. You strive to know another person deeply when you love them. And as a consequence, that knowledge as a part of you becomes the component of the person indwelling in your, again, apprehension. And likewise, they will do the same to you. By learning to know them, by giving yourself the time, the effort to get to know them, they get to know you as well. You impose your values your knowledge on them, and they impose their values, their knowledge on you. That knowledge becomes a part of you, it dwells in you, and you now are each containing a part of the other person. But it's not just apprehension, it's not just in this knowledge form. He also says that as the appetitive power, the object loved is said to be in the lover inasmuch as it is in his affections by a kind of complacency, causing him either to take pleasure in it or in its good when presence or in the absence of the object loved by his longing to tend towards it with the love of concupiscence, or toward, towards the good that he wills to the beloved with the love of friendship. Now I should stress, because I imagine that many of you are already confused by the fact that I've said concupiscence like 16 times and not bothered to explain what it is, when he's talking about concupiscence, he is talking about erotic love. Concupiscence is basically like the sexual desire here. Um, but I think it's more than that, the way that Aquinas is talking about it. Well, he certainly has physical attraction, physical desire on his mind, and concupiscence is more typically referring to this. We could definitely extend this to Eros in all of its forms. Like, admiration for beauty, the way that Ibn Sina talks about it in his treatise on love, could definitely apply here. Even if sex isn't the ultimate goal, that kissing and embracing that Ibn Sina was so eager to sit to like get get the passing grade on, you know, Aquinas seems to have a fairly similar relationship here. He believes that that physical desire in whatever form it takes, that pleasure that you take in the presence of another person, is also something that is exchanged. 
Like, you can no longer divide yourself from another person without injuring yourself in some way. You long for the presence of the other, and when that person is near, you take pleasure in their presence. That, too, implies a sort of exchange here, that they are in you in some sense, that there is some indwelling component of theirs hanging out in your psyche or your soul, and vice versa. Um, so I want to kind of stress this. But for Aquinas, there is this sort of mystical dimension to love, this sort of quality by which each person is affected strongly, influenced strongly, that they possess a component of the other person, that they mutually indwell one another. And what I really want to stress here is that the model that Aquinas is using is in fact God in 1 John. Um, he is stressing that just as God indwells the lover of God and you in, are abiding in God, so is this the same with the human relationships that you possess. This is going to be super significant. Like, this is not totally out of the realm of possibility. Again, Aquinas is not taking a huge move or leap here. This is all stuff that would logically, you know, come up just from studying Aristotle and studying other medieval philosophers. Like, he even quotes um, the ethics where we had read uh, on page 165, he says, Hence it is proper to friends to desire the same things, to grieve and rejoice at the same time, um, as we heard in the Nicomachean Ethics. Like, this is not a huge reach from that line, and that was all the way back in Aristotle. Um, yes, if you are sharing lives the way that Aristotle is talking about, then you are presumably sharing yourself. You are mutually indwelling in this sense. But what's so important here is that the theological dimension, this religious dimension, this dimension that usually was explicitly referred to just the relationship between God and humans, this mystical or theological or, you know, transcendent dimension, is now informing all of your friendly relationships, all of your loving relationships. Aquinas is, and we have seen this before, starting to break down the barrier between the holiness of love and the more mundaneness of love. Like Andreas Capellanus is writing about a very similar phenomenon. Ibn Sina doesn't recognize a difference between human relationships and the relationship between God and man. Like, this is something that I, I very much stressed in the last lecture is totally alien to Christian philosophy. Like, it's not something that Christians at this point in time would really have been comfortable talking about. And that's why this whole art of courtly love thing is largely condemned by the likes of Andreas Capellanus and the monks and the religious sort of orthodoxy. Why it's really only being practiced by the poets and the nobles and other various people who are just, you know, doing art for art's sake instead of worrying about what Christianity thinks of them. But notice that Aquinas seems to be on board for this. Not full-on, you know, go ahead and commit adultery, that's fine, because love is love, and it doesn't matter whether you're loving, like, that's definitely not within his purview, and he's actually going to, like, take some pretty hard stance against um, concupiscent love in most of its forms in, in later passages. But I do want to stress that he is at least opening the door. He is saying that friendship looks the way that your relationship with God looks. Love, in all its forms, looks the relationship look like the relationship with God looks. And this is going to get more emphasized as time goes on. 
Like, in the next lecture when we start talking about Dante and Beatrice, we're going to see that barrier, that separation between these two ideas just up and disintegrate. Um, but we'll get to that next time. The next thing that I sort of want to talk about is in the sixth article, like as much as zeal is fascinating and so on, I guess we should talk about the fifth article first. The fifth article, he asks whether love is a passion that wounds the lover, and in this one I'm always kind of struck by. This is where he's definitely sort of taking digs um, at the courtly love tradition. Um, his argument is that it doesn't. Like, love shouldn't hurt you. It shouldn't damage you in some way. Like, notice what he says on, on the contrary, quoting uh, Pseudo-Dionysus. Um, Dionysus says that everything loves itself with a love that holds it together, that is, that preserves it. Therefore, love is not a wounding passion, but rather one that preserves and perfects. So notice what he's doing with this whole courtly love discussion. Like, where courtly love was all about, like, oh, I am pining for my beloved, even though I know that I will never, ever be able to be with them. Like, Aquinas is like, nope, no pining. Pining is straight out. Like, no way are you going to sin in order to help a friend or, you know, anything like that. He'll talk about that considerably later. Um, instead, what he's very much emphasizing is, if it hurts you, it's not love. It's something else. So notice what he says, and I answer that. As stated above in question 26, etc., 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 love denotes a certain adapting of the appetitive power to some good. Now, nothing is hurt by being adapted to that which is suitable to it. Rather, if possible, it is perfected and bettered. Once again, he's just following Aristotle here. Like, if you are seeking after goods, if you are desiring goods, then they will only make you better. But, he emphasizes, if a thing be adapted to that which is not suitable to it, it is hurt and made worse thereby. Consequently, love of a suitable good perfects and betters the lover, but love of a good which is unsuitable to the lover wounds and worsens him. And you can hear Augustine floating around in this conversation as well. Remember Augustine's whole discussion about like, oh, we wanted the pears, but we didn't want the pears because of the pears. We wanted the pears because we wanted sin. Like, Augustine, too, generally agrees that all things in this world are good to some purpose. Like, God doesn't make bad things. Remember Genesis 1, like, God made the world, he saw that it was good. There's no negativity in this, besides what humans corrupt and, and fail to sort of bring together. But, as Aristotle notices, if you are immoderate in your use of goodness, then bad things happen to you. If you eat food, that's good. Food is good for you. If you eat too much food, then you get sick and possibly even die. If you eat too little food, then you get sick and you possibly even die. Likewise, sex is good. It is a good thing. God made it for our use. But you do it too much or in the wrong way, and bad things happen to you. Um, that's what Aristotle Aristotle suggests in the Nicomachean Ethics. It's what uh, Augustine would have agreed with in the Confessions and elsewhere. And Aquinas absolutely reiterates it here. Yes, goods are good for you, but in moderation, at the right time, and notice that he uses the term suitable good. As long as you are following suitable goods, as long as you are doing it moderately, it will in fact perfect and better you. If you are doing it immoderately, or if you are following the wrong good, then it will just make you sad. It will wound and worsen you. 
Um, so notice what he's basically doing to this whole art of courtly love discussion. Remember, like, when Capilanus and even Ibn Sina were talking about love, it was very much at this extreme. Like, the, the whole courtly love business was you will do anything for your beloved. You will, you know, die for your beloved. You will fight for your beloved. You will suffer for your beloved. You will sit up late at nights dreaming of your beloved. Like, Every part of you is sort of focused on this. Aquinas is very much ruling this out by saying that is immoderate. That is not what love is supposed to be doing. That is taking something which is fundamentally good and pushing it to such an extreme that it is actually damaging you. That's not love, is what Aquinas is basically stressing here. As much as there are positive effects to be had from love, as well as a couple of negative effects, if it has gotten to the part that it is doing something negative to you, and not just in the sense of like physical suffering, but like legitimately causing you to sin or causing you to, you know, be harmed in as far as your spiritual welfare is concerned, that's not okay. That's not acceptable. That's the line for Aquinas. There are suitable goods and there are unsuitable goods. Doesn't mean that they're not good, it just means that you're not supposed to take advantage of them right here and right now. And adultery almost certainly falls in this category, even though he doesn't bring it up explicitly. Yes, sex is good, love is good, Aquinas is all about this, but love the right person in the right time. Don't love people who you shouldn't be loving, in short, because then it will cause harm. Then it will make things bad for you. Now, the last thing that I do want to stress is the sixth article in, in section 1-2, uh, because it should look extremely similar to what we saw from Ibn Sina in his treatise on love. Um, namely, he says that love is the thing that, love is the cause of literally everything that the lover does. Um, and he's straight out quotes Dionysus, who agrees with this. All things, whatever they do, they do for the love of, the love of good. But notice, again, like Ibn Sina, he follows the logic and sees this as talking about God. Like, he's really brief in his description here. He literally has, like, two sentences. I answer that every agent acts for an end, as, states, as stated above. The end is the good desired and loved by each one. Wherefore, it is evident that every agent, whatever it be, does every action from love of some kind. Bam. Done. Like, we don't even need to add anything. Just answer the objections and call it a day. Like, this is so obvious in Aristotelian philosophy. He's following Ibn Sina here. Everybody agrees. Things have purposes. To follow that purpose is love. That's all we need to say about it. Therefore, love is the cause of all actions, period, the end. Um, so we can move on from there. But I did want to sort of bring it up to sort of draw that through line between Ibn Sina and, and Aquinas here. Um, now... At this point, our text jumps, like, a lot. We go from section 1-2 to section 2-2, which is probably, you know, as much as it is just like a page-long jump here, it's probably 500 pages or more in the original Summa Theologica. So keep in mind that we're in a completely different part of the text here. Um, section 2-2 is actually usually considered the ethical component of uh, Aquinas' philosophy. So we've gone from discussing the metaphysics, what is love, how does love work, how does love affect us, to how should we do love? Um, how does love fit into the good life? How does, uh, how does love inform our behavior between one another? And notice that he starts right out the gate by changing the discussion to charity. 
this is the key component here. This is the key element that Aquinas is introducing to this philosophy that admittedly we have not seen before. So pay close attention here. Um, and notice this first question, the first article that he asks in question 23, is charity friendship? And notice that his answer is basically yes. Um, so on the contrary, it is written in John 15, 15, I will not now call you my servants, but my friends. This was said to them by reason of nothing else than charity, therefore charity is friendship. Notice that he is taking this Christian notion of charity and marrying it directly to the Aristotelian notion of friendship. They are one and the same as far as uh, Aquinas is concerned. Now there are some caveats here. Remember, Aristotle described a whole bunch of friendships, and he even mentions in Objection 3, further according to the philosopher, there are three kinds of friendship directed respectively towards the delightful, the useful, or the virtuous. Again, three categories of friendship. We know this. We talked about this weeks ago. Now, charity is not friendship for the useful or delightful. For Jerome says in his letter to Paulinus, which is to be found at the beginning of the Bible, true friendship cemented by Christ is where men are drawn together not by household interests, not by mere bodily presence, not by the crafty and cajoling flattery, but by the fear of God and the study of the divine scriptures. No more is it friendship for the virtuous, since by charity we love even sinners, whereas friendship based on the virtuous is only for virtuous men. Therefore, charity is not friendship, he argues. But again, that's not the position he's taking. And as soon as we get into his I answer that, he argues, again, from the Nicomachean ethics, that while not every love has the character of friendship, but that love is together with benevolence, when to wit we love someone so as to wish good to him. If, however, we do not wish good to what we love, but wish it's good for ourselves, thus we are said to love wine or a horse or the like, it is not love of friendship, but of a kind of concupiscence, for it would be absurd to speak of having friendship for a wine or for a horse. So again, that distinction is drawn here. Concupiscent love is specifically love that you have that makes you happy. I love my horse because I enjoy riding my horse. I love wine because it tastes good and it makes me feel good. I love my friend who has a fancy video game console or a swimming pool because I like to play video games or I like to swim. Not, I like that person for the sake of that person. But that distinction is key here. Concupiscent love is not charity, and it is not friendship in any real sense. Neither does well-wishing suffice for friendship, for a certain mutual love is requisite. Accordingly, since there is a communication between man and God, inasmuch as he communicates his happiness to us, some kind of friendship must needs be based on the same communication, of which it is written, God is faithful by whom you are called unto the fellowship of his Son. The love which is based on this communication is charity. Wherefore, it is evident that charity is the friendship of man for God. Notice the move here. We are saying that God's relationship to human beings, the fact that God has our best interests in mind, implies the same sort of fundamental virtuous friendship that Aristotle is talking about. If friendship is wishing good for another person, not for yourself, but for that person in and of itself, since God is doing that, and since Christians call that relationship charity, friendship is charity. They are one and the same thing. Now he'll specify that there are various kinds of friendships that do not hold up to this standard. Again, 
when we use the term friendship in a sort of casual or general way, that's not what he was referring to. Friendships of utility, friendships of pleasure, those are not charity. Um, and importantly, when he actually addresses that third objection we talked about, he says, the friendship that is based on the virtuous is directed to none but a virtuous man as the principal person, but for his sake we love those who belong to him, even though they be not virtuous. Notice what he's doing here. Even if your friend is in fact super virtuous, your friend may have people that they care about who are not virtuous, in which case your friendship would lead you to care for non-virtuous people. So, he continues, in this way charity, which above all is friendship based on the virtuous, extends to sinners whom out of charity we love for God's sake. If charity, and if indeed friendship, is based on the fundamental relationship between us and God, and not us and some other random virtuous person, then the implication there is that since we are friends with God, since we share fellowship with God, as 1 Corinthians puts it, since we share charity with God, since God feels charity towards us and us in response, therefore, since God is worried about sinners, we are worried about sinners too. And this is the basic structure that's going to define the rest of what Aquinas has to say here. The relationship between God and man, like we've talked about from the beginning of our discussion of Christianity, heck, all the way back to the Old Testament, has very much emphasized you love God, you follow God, you experience this relationship with God, and as a consequence of that relationship with God, as a consequence of your obedience to God, God tells you to be nice to people, and you do. You follow whatever God's lead is. You obey whatever God's commandments are. Therefore, since God loves you, you love people who don't deserve it. And Aquinas is making the same case here. But he is saying it specifically by using Aristotelian language, using Aristotelian concepts. The friendship that Aristotle has between virtuous people is the model for the Christian's relationship to God. And since the Christian's relationship to God further extends to sinners because God wants you to befriend sinners, because God expects you to show charity towards sinners, then that relationship is still the model. The Aristotelian friendship now extends to everybody. All of us seek mutual virtue. Remember, that was the thing that held us back from discussing Aristotle. Like, Aristotle is like, okay, well, some people just aren't virtuous. There are base people, and there are vulgar people, and there are just straight-up vicious people. And obviously, they will never be friends with virtuous people because they have different priorities, they have different interests, they are looking for the same things. What Aquinas is saying here is no. We are all of us, to the last, saint and sinner alike, whether we know it or not, pursuing God, pursuing virtue. Because that's what Christianity teaches us. Just as Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they rest in God. We all long for this connection with God. And therefore, we all have this in common. We are all seekers after virtue, and therefore we all have each other's best interests in mind. Charity... This very typically Christian relationship has as its model what Aristotle was describing in the Nicomachean Ethics. They are one and the same thing. And notice, too, that he makes this even more explicit when he starts talking about the way that this, you know, 
you have to love your brother as well. Notice in the first article of question 25, whether the love of charity stops at God or extends to our neighbors, he makes this super explicit. On the contrary, it is written, and once again, right back to 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 21, this commandment we have from God, that he who loveth God love also his brother. I answer that, as stated above, habits are not differentiated, except their acts be of different species, for every act of the one species belongs to the same habit. Now, since the species of an act is derived from its object, considered under its formal aspect, it follows of necessity that it is specifically the same act that tends to an aspect of the object, and that tends to the object under that aspect. This is all very complicated language, let's get to the good part. Now, the aspect under which our neighbor is to be loved is God since what we ought to love in our neighbor is that he may be in God. Hence it is clear that it is specifically the same act whereby we love God and whereby we love our neighbor. Now this is actually fairly unusual for Aquinas. Um, when Aquinas is talking about the relationship we have between God and ourselves and how that same relationship applies to humans, when we start attributing names to God or characteristics to God, Aquinas is actually the pioneer of this very new concept in medieval philosophy. Like, up until this point, there's a lot of philosophers who have been really puzzled at the subject of, can we say that God is, say, wise, or powerful, or just, or good? Because while you can, and generally people do, say these things about God, the philosophers are arguing, well, God is not wise in the same way that a human is wise. Like, a human is wise because they can, you know, have some insight into the past that allows them to predict the future, or they have, like, knowledge of how exactly to do things effectively or efficiently, whereas God, being omnipotent, has a completely different source of knowledge and a completely different relationship to his own, own knowledge. And therefore, to say that God is wise is to do an injustice to God. And in fact, John Damascene is going out of his way arguing, you know, you can't say anything about God. There is nothing positive that you can say about God. All you can say is negative things about God. Not to say that, like, God is bad or something, but rather that God is not wise. God is not good. God does not sin. God is not like us. Um, Damascene is arguing that any positive attribution you made that God is wise is actually sort of selling God short. He's, it's sort of implicitly anthropomorphizing him, making him out to be more human than he actually is, attributing human classifications, characteristics, and categories to a god that is essentially beyond all of those names, words, or classifications. Aquinas pushes back against this. His argument is not that these words are equivocal, that they mean two different things based on whether you're talking to god or talking about humans, and they are not univocal. They are not the same thing. Like, they can't be. Again, God's wisdom is radically different from human wisdom. God's power is radically different from human power. Instead, Aquinas argues that it is analogical. There is a similarity, an analogy, between the goodness of God and the goodness of humans, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of humans, and so on and so forth. But here, instead, he's arguing that charity is univocal. 
It is the same aspect under which our neighbor is loved that we are supposed to love God. We love God because we appreciate that virtue in him. We admire him. We see that like-to-like -like relationship, the image of God in us and the actual God there. We admire him and strive towards him. We want to be like him. All of that connects us. And that charity is that friendship that binds us, that mutual indwelling, God to man, man to God. But again, because all people are seeking God in the same way and because God loves those people, people, sinners, saints, or otherwise, we have to have the exact same relationship. Charity, this word that, that we use to describe the relationship with God, is also the same as the one that we describe our relationship with our fellow human beings, our neighbors. Because we love God, we love our neighbor. He commands us to do that, and he also very much wants that relationship to be similar. But that said, Aquinas does hedge on this for quite a bit of the rest of the, of the book. Um, so he emphasizes, like, you want to love yourself before you love your neighbor, because while your neighbor can at most participate, like, partner in your relationship with God, like, you can follow God together, it will not be the same as you dwelling in God, the way that we talked about with this mutual indwelling business. So therefore, it is more important that you follow God than you make sure that your neighbor follows God. Which is especially important from a practical standpoint, because as Aquinas points out um, in the reply to the second objection, a man ought to bear bodily injury for his friend's sake, but a man ought not to suffer injury by sinning. It is never worth it to sin for the sake of your neighbor's salvation. Like, that's just not how it works. Your salvation has to come first. And Aquinas is kind of neatly sidestepping the, uh, the theological concept that, like, sin never provides a positive outcome. Um, it's tricksy, and Aquinas knows that it's tricksy, so he just dodges that discussion altogether. But notice the emphasis here. In no situation is it okay to do something that would transgress the law of God for the sake of following God's purpose and converting somebody to Christianity. Not a thing that you should ever do. It should always be your salvation, your sinlessness, first and foremost. But he also emphasizes that some neighbors are in fact supposed to be loved more than others. Now he doesn't argue that charity is supposed to change here, but he is instead arguing that our obligations do. So since it is a greater sin to hate your parents, for example, it is more important to love them as your neighbor than it is to love, say, a perfect stranger. So as much as Aquinas is saying that charity is this univocal term, that it is both the way that you love God and the way that you love your neighbor, it is very much insinuated by the following questions that actually you should prioritize God first, your obligations to God come first, and then also your relationships to close friends, family members, people who you do have a certain amount of obligation to, and only then should you extend your charity to neighbors and so on. Which is not to say that you shouldn't extend your charity to them, but rather that it is a lower priority. You have duties that come first. There is precedence here. But the other thing that I do sort of want to dwell on, the last sort of two things that I want to talk about are bits that we kind of skipped over there. I want to talk about the third article in question, what is this, 25? Whether irrational creatures also ought to be loved out of charity, because this one is going to rankle a little bit. And then the discussion in Article 4 and 7 about loving oneself and sinners loving themselves, which is all stuff that we've talked about before, but I do want to highlight it again here now that we're in Aquinas, largely because he's sort of like streamlining the whole discussion. 
First off, that third article, whether irrational creatures are also ought to be loved out of charity, notice that Aquinas doesn't actually have any patience for animals. Sorry, folks. If you have a particularly beloved dog or cat or other pet of some kind, Aquinas doesn't give a shit about it. Like, loving it and extending charity to it is totally inappropriate as far as Aquinas is concerned. And honestly, I'm not even sure that the logic holds up here. Like, as much as I have praised Aquinas many times for being rigorously logical, he seems to have a pretty heavy-duty blind spot here. Um, he stresses, on the contrary, the love of charity extends to none but God and our neighbor, but the word neighbor cannot be extended to rational creatures, since they have no fellowship with man in the rational life, therefore charity does not extend to rational creatures. That kind of makes sense. Okay, charity is purely a reciprocal rational relationship, and therefore rationality is the sort of, you know, prerequisite to participating in charity, and therefore animals can't be, you know, charitable. But at the same time, you know, talking about sinners, they are also usually characterized as irrational, and it usually doesn't matter that they are sinners, and the reciprocation isn't an issue here. Like, Aquinas doesn't say, you know, love sinners because they can love you back. Like, no, he's saying love sinners because God tells you to love them. So by this logic, you know, since God isn't telling you to love the animals, I guess that that's fair, but even so, it seems kind of weak as this argument goes. Um, but he continues, Now the love of friendship is twofold. First, there is the love for the friend to whom our friendship is given. Secondly, the love for those good things which we desire for a friend. But this seems to potentially apply to animals, right? Like, we can love the animal because we, you know, offer our friendship, our, our relationship to it. But also, we want to see the animal succeed. Like, we want the best for our animals. Like, our relationships to pets can frequently extend to that far. Like, if you have a dog, chances are you don't want that dog to feel pain. You are probably keen to, you know, give them medicine and give them treats from time to time, make sure that they are well fed, all those sorts of things. But notice, he doesn't really regard this. Like, with regard to the first, no irrational creature can be loved out of charity, and for three reasons. He has bunches of stuff here. Two of these reasons refer in a general way to friendship, which cannot have an irrational creature for its object, because friendship is one to whom we wish good things, while properly speaking, we cannot wish good things to an irrational creature, because it is not competent, properly speaking, to possess good. This being proper to the rational creature, which through its free will is the master of its disposal of the good it possesses? This seems really dodgy. Like, even Aristotle wouldn't necessarily follow that. Like, Aristotle would agree there are things that are good for the creature that they seek out. They seek out food, they seek out water. And yet, Aquinas is talking about free will. And yet, to some degree, uh, Aristotle recognizes that there is still discernment in creatures. Like, as, you know, he mentions a little bit later, like, an animal that is eating will stop eating and run away if it is threatened by a predator or something. So obviously there is some sort of goodness that animals recognize, something that they are attracted to. Heck, we were just talking about a little while ago the fact that love motivates all decisions. It is the cause of all things. Therefore, animals clearly have to love in order to just do stuff. So this doesn't really seem to hold up. Um, now he does pick on Aristotle's physics to say that we do not speak of good or evil befalling such like things, i.e. irrational creatures, except metaphorically, and I guess that's true? Like, in a very strict sense, perhaps it's metaphorical, but it does still seem dodgy. At the very least, it reflects a radical difference in the medieval perspective versus our own. 
Like, we tend to think of animals in terms of rationality. Not necessarily that they are rational, but that they behave in ways that are rational, that they pursue things that are good for themselves. Um, Aquinas just doesn't seem to think that this is the case. He does give us one caveat, though. Like this last paragraph there, we can love irrational creatures out of charity if we regard them as the good things that we desire for others, insofar to wit as we wish for their preservation, to God's honor and man's use. Thus, too, does God love them out of charity. So it would seem that the only situation that Aquinas is willing to accept, like an animal is a good thing and can be loved out of charity, is if it is specifically being loved with some human end in mind. So it's kind of easy to see this as like a cow that you want, you know, you love it out of charity, knowing full well that it is going to be butchered and, you know, served to humans to eat. Or, you know, a cow that is providing milk or a chicken providing eggs. Like there has to be some very obvious charitable good to a rational being at the end of the chain or else it does not count. Which again, I think is a little strange. And again, part of that is probably because we are very much informed by the sort of singer approach towards animal, you know, worth and, and well-being, where it's like the, the, def the deciding factor of what makes an animal worthwhile or not is not whether it is rational or irrational, but rather whether it can feel pain or pleasure. You know, animals seem to feel pleasure. They show every indication of feeling pleasure, and likewise, they very clearly show indications of feeling pain. Therefore, rationality is not on the table for Singer and his like. Um, but again, since Aquinas doesn't recognize that as the deciding factor of a being's well-being, like, he doesn't consider pleasure to be an indication of goodness, and instead goodness is only relative to rationality, animals are not on the table, and therefore cannot be friends, cannot be loved, cannot receive charity. Um, but I do want to talk, lastly, like, as much as that is an interesting sort of tidbit, it's also not terribly important to our discussion. I do want to talk about this last bit, whether a man ought to love himself out of charity and whether sinners love themselves. And again, this should look very familiar, but we should also very much emphasize the new Christian context here. This should absolutely remind us of that passage of in um, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where it talks about, you know, one has to be friends with oneself first, and that self-love is a good thing. That while there is this sort of brute selfishness that causes people to, like, be greedy and sort of accumulate wealth and power and honor to themselves, that's not true self-love. And true self-love is about perfecting oneself, recognizing one's virtue, practicing eudaimonia. Notice that Aquinas is using very much the same argument here, but we are framing it again as charity. Charity to oneself. Importantly, Aquinas is stressing, you know, you should love oneself out of charity because it will mean this union with God. That's what it's supposed to be, remember. Love is union, love is this mutual indwelling, charity is love, charity is friendship, and the goal here is this unity with God. Therefore, you should love yourself out of self-love because it will, in fact, you know, unite you to God, which improves you as a person, as well as ultimately being for God's own sake, since God wants to unify with you. Um, but notice, too, this seventh article, which again follows the Aristotelian model, sinners do not love themselves. And Aquinas is very careful with this passage. Notice that, you know, like I said, if Aquinas' first move is to draw distinctions between the words that we use fairly casually, this is like the perfect example. 
Um, he answers that love itself is common to all in one way, in another way it is proper to the good, and in a third way it is proper to the wicked. So he's describing there are three different ways that we talk about self-love. On the one hand, the first kind, the one that is common to all, is loving oneself because of what one thinks oneself to be. So insofar as you have a body and soul, insofar as you think that you are a valuable human being, you love yourself. And everybody loves themselves in this way. Good people, bad people, doesn't matter. But then we have the one that is proper to the good. And this is exactly the model that Aristotle was talking about with virtue. Um, when your rationality is the sovereign power in your mind, you appreciate yourself as a rational being. You appreciate your rationality and you follow your rationality because it is in charge. Therefore, if you love your own rationality, if you love your following of rationality, that's good. That is a good thing. People should do that. This is what self-love is supposed to look like. That's what Aristotle said about virtue more than rationality, but still the two very much follow one another. It's definitely what Aquinas says here. And like Aristotle, he points out that if you do not have rationality in charge, if instead you appreciate the passions or your lust or your gluttony or your greed, if you like the things that you've amassed instead of the personhood that you possess, the rationality that you possess, that self-love is selfishness, that is wickedness, that is what Aristotle is describing. And like Aristotle, Aquinas concludes that it is self-destructive. But here he's got so much more evidence for it. Because remember, in Christian circles, loving oneself in terms of loving the God in oneself, following the God in oneself, looking for an indwelling relationship with God, looking for this friendship-charity relationship with God, all of that is self-love and does make you a better person. Notice that Aquinas is not upset with the idea of selfishness as a Christian virtue, but it's good selfishness, selfishness that seeks betterment in the same sense that Aristotle talks about personal excellence. An excellent Christian who seeks their own excellence isn't doing something wrong. This is a good thing. Christianity should be following this excellence to this divinity that is set before us. But by contrast, when what we are searching for is not excellence, but personal gain, physical accomplishment, physical wealth, physical you know, satisfaction, pleasure in that sort of base sense, Aquinas rejects it. That is not self-love, he would argue. That is a perverse understanding of self-love. It's not what we mean most of the time, and therefore the wicked do not love themselves and are in fact destroying themselves. Not just insofar as like when they do all these bad things they're going to hell, but insofar as by doing all of these bad things they are removing themselves from who they really are. They are becoming less like themselves. They are becoming less like God. If we are aspiring to become God, again, in that sense that Ibn Sina was talking about it, where, you know, by seeking virtue, by practicing love, by, you know, following God's commands, we grow closer and closer and closer. More of us indwell with him, as Aquinas would put it. We achieve something much closer to that unity that we are looking for. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the perfection that we are all seeking. That's what love is all about by both Ibn Sina and Aristotle and Aquinas' definition. Um, but 
If you are not doing that, if your love of self blinds you to what you really are, if you forget that you are rational, that you are supposed to be seeking God, if you are seeking wealth and worldly pleasure instead, well, that's basically taking you away from your destination and therefore harming you, making you less yourself, making you less godlike. It is effectively destroying you. Boethius puts this really well in the Consolation of the Philosophy. He says that, you know, insofar as we are human beings, we are in this intermediary position between the divinity, God, and animals, like base, irrational animals, dogs, cats, snakes, birds, whatever. Insofar as we seek God, as we seek our rationality, the godly characteristic in us, which both Aquinas and Boethius would agree is rationality, insofar as we behave rationally, pursue virtue, pursue God, we come closer to God. We get more proximity to God. We become more ourselves, more who we are supposed to be, and more godlike at the same time. But when we don't do that, when we move farther away from God, we are also moving farther away from ourselves, and we are heading towards the category of bestiality. We are becoming more like animals. We are like the squirrels hoarding nuts for winter, or the dogs fornicating on the streets because they don't care any more than that. That's who we become. We injure ourselves. We damage our own rationality. We become less who we are, and we're, we become less who we are supposed to be. This is hugely important to all medieval philosophy, and Aquinas really puts a pretty nice bow on it here. So I do want to stress this, because this is going to be a huge distinction in the weeks to come. As modernism begins to take some medieval ideas and leave others on the table, this is one that is frequently going to get left behind. And in doing so, it's going to turn love from, you know, something that makes us better, something that improves us, something that makes us excel, that brings us closer to our own personal perfection, to something that is entirely a product of the passions, something that is entirely something carrying us away from ourselves, and therefore not what Aquinas is talking about at all. Love is about to change in some dramatic and radical ways. Um, this move from the medieval world to the humanistic modern worldview is going to be probably the most crazy of the transitions we've seen yet. Um, so be on the lookout for that. And as we read our chunk of the Divine Comedy for next time, keep this in mind. Look for the ways that Dante is following a lot of medieval philosophy, whether it's the courtly love tradition or what Aquinas is talking about with this sort of divinization of friendship, but also look at the way that they're leaving a lot of medieval philosophy on the table. They're leaving that sense of moderation, that Aristotelian care for what is good for me versus what is bad for me, that emphasis on following only what is good and not following what is bad. Because the humanists are going to be considerably more interested in excess. They're going to be picking up what Andreas Capellanus was putting down without that warning at the end. So, Read the Divine Comedy carefully, because we're going to use it as our model to talk about the humanistic and modern view of love for the next few weeks. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.